from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And uh, I'm joined by a, a guest that I'm thrilled to have on the program. Uh, this is kind of timely uh, with, um, I'm sure everyone's heard about, uh, Equifax and risk management here uh, over the uh, last few months. And uh, all 140-some-odd million adults in the U.S. Uh, were impacted somewhat by that data breach. Uh, so uh, it's a top-of-mind topic uh, these days. And uh, Jeff, uh, can you go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, share some of your background here with us today? Thank you. Thank you, Brett. And I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. My name is Jeff Rich. I have been in the security and law enforcement area for, let's just say, over 40 years. I've been in information security and risk management for about 38. Uh, Some of those, I actually worked with you. You and I met about 10 years ago at Rackspace. Yeah. My 10-year uh, anniversary of starting is coming up soon. Um, obviously, you stayed there much longer than I did. I've done a number of things since. Uh, one of the things I do about managing the risk of my career is sometimes playing on the edge, and I have no problem doing that. No. Uh, a- as you've seen. Yes. So I- I've done a lot of security, done a lot of compliance, risk management, which includes things beyond technology, and I just enjoy grabbing something new. Yeah, and this is uh, is where folk will focus on kind of the information systems and technology aspect. But as uh, companies think about chief information officer, that often means the IT guy, which is not necessarily the case. Companies have information that span onto paper records. They have information in all sorts of places. That CIO really should be thinking about how to take care of all of the company's information, whether it's digital or not digital. Uh, and as you get into the chief security officer, or chief information security officer, same thing. As you said, there's risk there that you can fix with computers, but there's also risks that need to be fixed with process or uh, risks that need to be mitigated through all sorts of methods, which is why um, even in the CISSP, uh, which is a widely known industry certification for security, there's domains that cover all sorts of things outside of just the computer. Absolutely. In fact, I'll, I'll add to that that Every device, process, or person you can use to manage risk can also be used to increase your risk. Yeah. Now, risk doesn't have to be bad, but it needs to be managed. So with uh, managing risk and thinking about that from a C-level uh, perspective, so you, you come in as, as an organization, um, how are you assessing that risk and, and uh, from a first step so that you can then start communicating with your peers to go manage that risk. And I think this will be a really interesting perspective and topic um, here because almost every company now is moving their critical records and critical information into a digital system. Uh, And with that, this risk is shifting from being a maybe a facilities risk to a digital and a cyber risk based. Uh, Hospitals is a great example. This lot of medical records are in filing cabinets right now, they're all becoming digital, um, and they're all starting to try to hire a chief information security officer, a chief security officer, to come in and, and help them get through this digital transformation. So not only are the records going digital, and in healthcare, that's by statute; they have to now. 
In fact, they should have already done it, but they aren't all there yet. Uh, what, in addition to that, not only are they going digital, they're also going into the cloud, which is really another dimension for many people that's an unknown. Yeah. And th there's yet another component of risk that needs to be managed. And whenever, right now I'm doing some freelance consulting for a few different companies. And it never fails. And each one says, come in and tell me what I need to do to make sure we're both compliant and secure, which I think are two major components of risk. And, and the very first question I asked them before I get into anything is, so do you know all of the assets you have and where they're located? And, and the answer is always no. Well, some, yes, maybe even most. But the answer is never yes, I know that. So I always come back immediately with, okay, your risk is greater than you want it to be. Let's yeah. start there. Yeah, and, and anyone that says, yes, I know where everything is, just it has, you can put an asterisk on that one because there are certainly things that are out there that they don't know about, which is how many of these, these breaches occur. If you go back to Target and you would have talked to Target's IT security team, they would have never thought that their HVAC vendor into their stores would have been able to get folks across into a credit card network. Um, so that network connection, probably the, all of those dots along that chain weren't connected in some inspection process. In fact, I've heard anecdotally that at one point they were actually segmented and then they upgraded the network. Yeah. And then what do you know? There's, there's new connectivity there. So uh, you, you've come into the organization, you've asked them to list and categorize out where they keep everything. What are all the systems? What are all the applications? How long does that process normally take? Uh, that uh, certainly depends on the size of the organization. You know, if I'm talking to a, um, a startup that's not that's maybe a bit past early stage, they have 10 employees, they have 300 customers, you know, that's something you can probably do within a couple of weeks. If I'm talking to an enterprise that's well-established, maybe they're even publicly held, they have 10,000 employees around the world, we're probably talking about a couple of months, and even then, at some point, you have to recognize here is the universe of which we know there is an alternative universe, I'm a physics major, so I'm going to go with that. There's yeah. an alternative universe of which you don't know, but actually influences and should be under your scope. So, yeah, so there's, it, you'll get that tier one application or tier one set of data categorized in a couple of months, but there's going to be other things out there. Uh, I mean, employees are going to plug stuff into the network, especially at a 10,000 employee company that they don't tell you about before they plug it in. And maybe you have controls in place on your network switches to detect some new device, but maybe you don't because they daisy chain it off of their computer and you can't see one of these things. There are always going to be unknowns uh, out there in the, the network. So that's one category of risk will always be these unknowns or uncertainties. And you can have process to document uh, many of the other things uh, and start to take care of them. So as you look at the those tier one set of applications and tier one sets of data that companies have, you, you talked about compliance and security. Uh, and for me, those mean two completely different things. Do you think about them that same way or? or? Well, I often, I do a lot of public speaking and, and there's a few go home slides that I have in almost pre every presentation. One of them is a Venn diagram of security and compliance. They do overlap, but 90% of each is unique Yeah. in most cases. And, and in fact, to help drive that home, when someone says, come in, I want you to make me compliant, I can do that. Do you want to be secure as well? And the example I use is take a look at every single major credit card breach that's occurred over the past 10 years, every single one. Every single one of those cases, 
that organization was PCI compliant up until the moment that they recognized they had a breach. Yeah. And then they went through and found out that one of their controls wasn't really being followed or processed problem effectively there. They had a, a control that wasn't being followed or they had a control that had a weakness in it that didn't catch something uh, that it should notice. Um, and then they're out of compliance until they go remediate that. And But that breach is something that still went and happened. Absolutely. Yeah. So as, as you're out there, you've categorized all these things now and, and you're looking at risk um, and you businesses have to be compliant in order like if you're a retail company you're going to be pci compliant because not accepting credit cards is not an option in the retail industry uh so i would guess you get a lot of pressure from the ceo cfo to be pci compliant as cheap as possible because retail also very thin margins um, and it's a very competitive market uh, for those folks uh, and they're going through and you're having that conversation about being compliant, but then also being secure. How do, how do you have that conversation with a CEO and CFO that maybe they're not from a, a technical background? Well, it, it depends. And to me, it has nothing to do with technology in the same way that a, an organization that, among other things that it does, includes transporting some of its goods or, um, or, or devices from one location to another, they don't necessarily have to know how those trucks work. Someone does. The mechanic maintaining the truck has to know how it works. The driver has to have a less deep knowledge, but still a knowledge of it. The CEO may not even know what the truck looks like. So if you take that analogy and bring it over to technology, the CEO, other than email and you know maybe some internal messaging tool and, and sales reports that they may look at, may not know what technology is, and there's nothing wrong with that. They don't have to be an expert in that. However, they have to have people in the organization that they can trust that do know that. In the same way, you wouldn't get into a truck where the mechanic said, I really didn't know much about this truck. I hope it works. Let's go a step further. I'm a plane, I'm an aircraft mechanic. Yeah. I think I did everything right. Let me know if it doesn't work right. You're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Technology should really be looked at in the same way because it's a critical component to making the company work. So, and, and you're having that conversation and they're double checking the trucks because uh, if the truck breaks down, goods don't get to the store, that impacts sales. Um, but on this PCI compliance side of stuff, just to continue in the retail industry, because this one hits almost every business really effectively mm -hmm. these days, not even just retail, uh, they have to be PCI compliant, but why should I have uh, controls where you really go double check this stuff? I just want to do it as cheap as I possibly can. I agree with you. You should never spend more than you need to for any given control. Sometimes the least expensive option is just simply ensuring that a control is met. And if double checking ensures that it's met, then that's what you need to do. And it is has become a cost of doing business. And the cost of noncompliance, especially in PCI, is no longer acceptable. It yeah. was 10 years ago, but it isn't now. So so you, you go through and, and you've achieved compliance there. And now, uh, just as maybe I inspect my trucks and they get that inspection certificate, I'm, I'm looking at them and going, okay, I'm good for the year now. Uh, and how do I know um, in all these scenarios that, now, am I actually safe or secure? And having that conversation, if as a IT or a risk professional, you may see that even though you're PCI compliant, there's still some gaps inside of 
the company's information architecture that is leaving them exposed or leaving sensitive information exposed. Where does that conversation go with your peers as a, a CEO or talking to the CFO um, about that from uh, the security perspective? Okay, so let's go with the assumption that the chief security officer is at the C-level. It, it not always is, and that's going to be a different conversation. Whether you're brought in as a virtual CISO, which I have an opportunity to do right now, is yet a different situation, and being a consultant is yet a different situation. Yeah. So if we're going to have the peer discussion, which I think is a good one to start with, you have to go on the assumption, and you should have already validated, that you're there because you're a peer and you're bringing that whole set of experience, knowledge, skill set, and knowing who to bring in to get that done to the situation to engage with the rest of the C-level people. So if we continue that, this is no different than having the chief marketing officer or uh, so the VP of sales or even the chief operating officer, which is actually probably going to be a bit broader, say, here's what I bring. Here's what we have for a budget. Here's what our revenue looks like. Everything you do should, should have an ROI to it. Another one of my go-to slides is always talks about the ROI of security. And I, I, I always call it the tree of FUD slide. I know you've seen it only because I've used it in every presentation I made for the past 20 years. Yes. And I will stop using it when people get it. And my guess is it'll, it'll um, succeed me after so I'm dead. So slide will outlive you, yes. <laughs> yes, it will. And, and, and the reason is you should never spend more than, than you would have lost. In fact, you should spend less than you would have lost if you didn't have a control. And there's only two things you need to know to have the right control in place. What are the assets? We've already discussed that as a gap, yeah. right? What are the controls and what are they going to cost to protect it? And then if I look at the cost of the controls and the value of the asset, the cost of the control should never come to the, the value of the asset. That's easily said, um, but I do believe you can have an ROI on every security control. And I do have a philosophical problem with security geeks, and I call myself a recovering security geek, that say, but there's a new firewall. Yeah. And, and look at this data leak protection tool. It's great. Um, yeah, show me how you're actually going to use it, turn it on, and tell me why spending $50,000 and then $15,000 a year for maintenance and training two people to learn how to manage it is going to give us a return. Yeah, and and um, that's one of the uh, interesting ones, I think, that a lot of the security folks need to start thinking about is how do you not just make things safer how do you actually make the business process run better? Because as soon as you start to make the business process run better and more efficiently, uh, then you're actually transitioning from just risk, pure risk mitigation to business optimization and business improvement. So uh, having a safe process that makes sure that you're checking through a number of steps and those steps are getting done properly, now you have quality control. You're getting potentially out of the security enhancement as well. So... Uh, as you're looking at rolling these things out, my suggestion to folks always is to think really about how is it impacting things, not just from inside of your own domain expertise, but how is it impacting to make the, the business a, a better business itself overall? Um, and I had a real difficult time explaining to folks that they're like, this risk, it's never going to happen to me. These, this, You're talking about this black swan risk. This is like something that's just irrelevant. And then um, Nassim Tlaib wrote the book. And then we had the 2007-2009 financial crash uh, related. And everyone's like, okay, I, I guess I understand these rare occurrences now. Not necessarily always rare. So when you're coming in and talking about this 
theoretical thing that could happen to us. We could have a motivated attacker going after our business, um, and we're not set up to handle that. Uh, for years, many businesses would just say, we're never going to be the target of an attack. We might have some kids trying to mess around with our network or a disgruntled employee, but that's all we have to mitigate against. We don't actually have to mitigate against a knowledgeable, motivated attacker. Um, and I, I think now that's starting to change from people understanding these low likelihood events actually can happen to them and uh, will happen because uh, you will have a motivated attacker like the Equifax attack here. They found some pretty glaring security flaws and process problems uh, through that, uh, but that was a very motivated, highly skilled attacking team that went after Equifax to the best of, of what I've seen so far. I think I'm not going to dispute that because I don't have enough facts about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, but the there's a number. I, I live in analogies. You've already paid, I think I've used six already. Yes. Here's another one. If you have a stack of money and you put it on a table and it's next to a window and you open the window and you walk away, if the money's gone, who if someone took it, which you may not even be sure of, right? They committed a crime. There's no. Yeah, they took something of value that didn't belong to them, right? Yes. So is that entirely their fault? Are, do you have anything, do you have any culpability in the stream of events that said, gee, if I didn't make it visible or I closed and locked the window, that money wouldn't be gone? I, I think that works for you. Even if they are motivated and intelligent and persistent and advanced, and, and there are some out there, although most of those I think are state actors, if they are in that condition, yeah, you're not going to be able to effectively prevent that. But that doesn't mean you should leave money on the table with an open window. So in your uh, stack of money analogy there, uh, and I'm, as I talked a bit before about this, you have a, a process, and you can have processes that uh, through Six Sigma or whatever else, you don't get errors, you don't have defects in these processes. How do you think about that related to security and security controls? So security and security professionals I think should be taking the role of advisors, offering the right tools and resources for the people whose finger are on the pulse of the company to manage. An example I'll use there is someone that is maintaining a critical application doesn't need the security person coming in and saying, oh, you need to close this port and, and this external call should be changed because it was written in a certain way and the person maintaining it knows what works However, if the security professional instead said two things, let's agree on what it needs to be able to accomplish and how it needs to protect things. Whenever we see a deviation from that, consider that a defect just like you would a software defect that has to be addressed. And here's some tools you can use to either monitor it or we can give you reports or here's tools that can help you control it. But it's still something I think needs to be in the hands of the people maintaining the service, not necessarily in the hands of the security professional. Yeah, and it's a, a good one about managing risk. Sometimes you can actually fix or eliminate the risk. Other times that risk has to remain and you can just watch it. So in the event that something does happen there, um, you see it and then you can react to the, the second order uh, effects from that that risk inside of things. Like we have, well, try my own analogy here for a minute. We've got trucks, they have rubber tires on them. There's a risk that tire is going to run over something and go flat. And then on big trucks, they put 
dual sets of tires on the axle so that if you do run over and get one flat tire, the truck doesn't uh, have a problem and have to pull straight off to the side of the road immediately. So, um, and then may now on some of the more uh, maybe modern aircraft as well, you have a whole bunch of knobs, gauges, dials, all sorts of things. So you can see different pressure in different places um, and you're watching a risk um, and then you're able to use that information to act on that risk if a problem occurs before it becomes a catastrophic or, or fatal problem. Yeah, without question, when life and limb are at stake, you need systems that you can count on that probably have backups as well. On the other hand, another risk management things that people take every day, I'm assuming you don't live in this building. No. Good. That was a safe assumption. I think I have an idea where you live, but I know it's not here. That means today, I'm assuming you didn't sleep here last night either, that you transported yourself here, whether you took a bus or walked or drove or any combination of that. And every one of those, especially if you know where we are, you are managing the risk of, should I cross the street? Should I drive into this intersection? Should I get on the interstate? And even though you're doing a great job of managing, and I'm going to use a personal experience that happened to me in July, I happened to be about 100 yards behind a crane truck, one of those big 92-ton crane trucks, and the drive axle on the trailer fell apart. So there were about 10 inches, 10 inch long pieces of eight inch pipe, steel pipe, bouncing on the road. Oh dear. Yeah, so I actually, and they were bouncing pretty high. Uh, so I had the potential of eating that pipe through the windshield. Um, but fortunately, I say fortunately, it went under the car. And we aren't quite done with it, but so far it's only cost $6,000 worth of damage. I did nothing wrong. I manage all my risk appropriately, yeah. and, and it, it still happened. So you always prepare for what you can and respond to the rest. Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, I don't know, can't remember the name of the movie, Behind the Log Truck. Final Destination, yeah. Yeah, I've got, I've got my producer nodding at me saying, Final Destination, Brett, yeah. Uh, I, I, I try to avoid log trucks like the plague now if I'm out there driving. Uh, just from that risk perspective, you never know when the harness is going to break off. And uh, that log off of a big timber tree sounds uh, even much more scary than the pipe, which could also equally be scary. Uh, but I'm not going to suggest that you avoid trucks with axles. No, yeah, I mean you can't. You have to follow behind any any vehicle has that. So yeah, you would be. That's where that security risk and and risk management control can leave you. It's like a bubble boy, safe from all the viruses. But life is really really difficult, and you've created so many obstacles uh, to being able to accomplish everything we do each day that the that cost of managing the risk outweighs the, the risk itself. Or, or the benefit to get the value inherent, which is why you should never spend more than the value of what it is. So you take those risks. By the way, there were cars on either side of me, and we were doing about 70 miles an hour in the north part of the interstate. Yeah. And um, if I was doing anything other than watching the road, there's a chance I wouldn't be able to be here to talk to you. So you got to pay attention, too. Yes. Yeah, this will be uh, as as we uh, we've done a program on uh, autonomous vehicles and some of the ethics and things behind that is in in those situations that you just described there. How does the autonomous vehicle react? And if you as a passenger just sitting in there not paying attention to the road because say we're fully autonomous at this point in time, um, you might not know to duck that something's coming through your windshield and the car is going to decide the safest thing for me to do is just drive along here. 
um, because the car can probably keep driving if something bounces through the windshield. It's not going to necessarily think about that. So um, some new risks. If you did want to listen more about autonomous vehicles, you can check on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com and check the past episodes. Uh, They're also available on iTunes Podcast, Pocket Cast, or your favorite uh, podcasting streaming service. If you've just joined us in the radio dial here, this is Cyber Talk Radio um, with Jeff Rich this week, and we're uh, talking about managing risk, and we will be back uh, after the news, traffic, and weather update here at the bottom of the hour to continue this discussion. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Joined this week by Jeff Rich, a chief security officer, and uh, many other things throughout his uh, career. I even spent some uh, time in a black and white vehicle, uh, I heard as we were talking over the break. I did, I did not know that, Jeff. It's a very long time ago. Yes. So uh, and things were different. Yes. Very different then. We've been discussing uh, managing risk uh, before the break. If you're just joining us now after that news, traffic, and weather update, uh, you can listen to the full episode uh, on iTunes Podcast, Pocket Casts, uh, or on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com the Tuesday uh, following this Saturday evening. If you happen to be listening to us online and you're like, man, I wish I could hear these CyberTalk Radio programs uh, sooner, uh, we air on Saturday nights. Uh, around 11 p.m. on 1200 WAI. Um, as well, uh, you can listen over the AM dial or via iHeartRadio. Uh, so first part, Jeff, we had we talked uh, about uh, managing risk, understanding first where you should focus on managing your risk, identifying what assets you have, where are you keeping them, uh, what are you doing to keep them safe today, kind of getting that, that inventory and catalog going and that led into a, a talk about uh, compliance um, and we, we had that difference between security and compliance and we didn't didn't get a chance yet to dive into really keeping things safe and secure um, at, at the the depth level so if I have if I'm um, coca-cola I've got my secret magic formula so you want to keep that secure um, and that's a super valuable asset you know it's valuable. Um, how do you, you approach that? Because there's no compliance standard. There's nothing telling Coca-Cola you have to protect this secret formula. So they don't have any regulatory compliance or anything else uh, around uh, how they, they mix their soda. So that's a trade secret. And for those that don't know, the difference between a trade secret and um, something that's patented where you have protection, anything that's patented becomes public information. And the protection is that should anyone use that, you're going to receive some sort of compensation for it. Yeah. A trade secret is something that you have that you don't, by definition, is a secret you don't want anyone to know. And the Coca-Cola formula is treated by them as a trade secret. 
there was a situation where there was an, an unscrupulous competitor that tried to compromise one of the ad administrative assistants for an executive at Coca-Cola a few years ago. And it was discovered, and the disclosure didn't happen. But what Coca-Cola did from that point forward was take the secret and split it into two and kept it secure in two different locations. So that's a great example of you don't have to have a whole bunch of expensive, fancy, convoluted stuff to protect what you have. Look at the value of it. What's the best way to protect it? So I think that's a great example of how they responded appropriately without overkill. Yeah. Uh, a lot of folks have, I've heard uh, the jokes and rumors that the gold's no longer inside Fort Knox, but as long as everybody thinks it's in there um, and everyone's trying to figure out how to break into it, even if they eventually do get inside Fort Knox, they're going to get in and see an empty vault because um, you could have the gold in some other secret location uh, that doesn't necessarily even have to have all the same layers of security that Fort Knox does, um, but because no one knows where it's at, then you don't have to protect it. It's just like the idea there where you've divided the formula up and you've hidden it in a couple of pieces or a couple of different locations uh, that make it hard for someone to find both and assemble it. Yeah, and it really boils down to there's three components to risk, and this is how you get to safe and secure. Because every risk you look at, this is my third go-to slide, by the way. I knew I'd get to all three before this it was over. And this has a triangle that talks about the impact of risk. And with that triangle is within a circle that you define as your risk appetite. Here's the risk I'm willing to accept or take. Companies that say, oh, we're risk averse. You know, I go back to, really, how did you get here today? I use that example. So you have to define what risk are you willing to take. In other words, what value are you willing to potentially lose? And then that triangle inside that is the impact. You want to keep the triangle inside your risk appetite. There's three vectors that are trying to expand each side of that triangle. One is a threat. Another is a vulnerability. And the third is probability. If you can take any one of those and reduce the length of that side of the triangle down to near zero, then the area of the triangle, which is your actual risk impact, approaches zero. I know this may not be as easy to envision on, on a radio as it, as it is my show to you, but it goes back to high school geometry. So if the gold is somewhere else, they still have to do some, take some measures to protect it. Yeah. But now they've taken, they, they may have increased the vulnerability of where it's stored, but they've reduced the probability because people aren't looking for it in this other place. Yeah. So you take one of those three. When you reduce getting one of those three, you don't have to worry about the other two. Yeah, this is um, just a, one of these math things again to envision. So all the, the gold in the whole world that we've ever mined, if you, you melted it down, you could put it into a cube that would fit inside the infield of a, a baseball diamond. So it'll be as tall as the, the baseball diamond uh, as well as those the baselines there. So about a 60 to 90 foot cube uh, will give you all the gold in the world. So you, you look at how big that vault is. Uh, pretty big or it's got really thick steel walls or they're storing something else in there that's not just gold yeah there's a whole bunch of they're spending a lot that may be worth more than that of course the problem with having that big gold brick is that you'd never have any device that could lift it or move it no gold is heavy <laughs> yes it is yeah that's a the the when you watch the movies and they're tossing around those gold bars you don't toss a bar of gold yeah, uh, no, no one appreciates the gravity of that situation yes so as we you so you talked into kind of three of the, the fundamental components of of risk so you have the the impact of it 
Uh, we were talking about uh, during the break uh, a recall on some automobile airbags to where um, if the the airbag could go off um, and that's not great like if it just goes off without when it's when it's not supposed to um, and that's a risk that's gonna potentially impact your ability to drive the vehicle in a minute may actually get you into a wreck it could break your nose if you're not looking at it right um, but then you, know, you had mentioned that not only did it potentially go off at the wrong point in time but release shrapnel mm-hmm so now, in addition to everything you said, you're, the impact includes you not being able to continue living on the earth. So uh, the impact now very likely has grown outside your risk appetite. Yeah. Right? Most people don't want to say, I'm willing to let that kill me. Yeah. No, I'm willing to maybe let it punch me in the face. But maybe. Maybe. Maybe you're not even. You, if you do happen to have a car and you got that recall notice for the airbag, please go take your car in. Hopefully this is all done and everyone's turned their cars in. But knowing what, what uh, I, we know about risk management, there's still some cars out there on the road that got that recall notice that have not been into their dealership yet. Absolutely, because that threat is the defective, is the accidental triggering, all right? Now, as, as we talked about, that threat could be increasing over time because it could be that the parts that help control it are deteriorating. Yeah. So that threat's increasing, meaning that side of the triangle is getting larger and larger. The vulnerability is that you have the frailty of a human head. That vulnerability doesn't change. That's usually pretty consistent. Oh, I like this. It, yeah. Well, we can wear a motorcycle helmet while driving our car. Yeah, or, or and that's one of the reasons race cars wear helmets. Yeah. See, it's all there drivers we they wear helmets. See, it's all coming. It's all go full circle, and then when you look at the probability, it only increases if you know the threat's increasing. It may be related to that, but outside of that, the probably the probability isn't going to increase. But in any case, as the threat increases, as that triangle goes outside your risk appetite, you don't want to be driving that car. So go get it replaced. Yeah. And for uh, those of you just joining us here uh, and listening online, this is CyberTalk Radio, and we're talking about risk management, which is uh, fundamental to cybersecurity. And, and the, with the start of the program, we really got into some of these things that you can apply this to technology. But if you're just out implementing security controls and buying the, the latest, greatest security device, um, if you're not sure what you're using it for, uh, what risk you're really managing, and how that uh, risk could impact your infrastructure, um, you're going to have a lot of uh, fancy technology, and you're still not going to have a, a safe and secure and compliant environment. So uh, the risk management, risk mitigation is a key area to understand, uh, especially as you move into the security management um, and security executive levels. If you're just a skilled practitioner and you're not looking at the holistic picture, you're um, not going to uh, rise to the executive levels, and then you're also not going to really protect your organization um, in a way that keeps it safe. It's going to keep that one thing secure. So I, I think idealistically that's accurate. Unfortunately, I think what you said doesn't happen, happens more often than it should, in that there are these what I call security geeks that do make it to a CISO position, whether you call that executive level or not. Let's, let's not get into that debate. And unfortunately, there are some that get to the CISO level because they were really good at managing the security technology. And at some point, they actually managed two engineers. So they became the CISO. And those are the ones that most often complain 
I don't really have a seat at the table. I don't get the budget I need. People don't really listen. When we say there's a security flaw, it gets 10th priority on what's going to be fixed. So as much as I like to say you're not going to rise, you can, but when you do, that's for the wrong reason, and you're probably going to suffer because of it. I think what it boils down to is it's incumbent upon the chief executive of an organization to say, I want an executive that can manage the risk and security that that we have going on, just like I want an executive that can manage the finances of what, what's going on. It doesn't mean that the chief financial officer was a great accountant for 15 years. They may have been, but when you get down to it, that's not the reason they're the CFO. Yeah. And it, it's interesting, I guess, uh, as I think through during the conversation we're having here, uh, financial institutions have a chief risk officer, uh, but they're usually not taking care of the computer stuff. Uh, other companies don't have a chief risk officer. We've got these chief security officers or chief information security officers. Uh, I wonder if we can start a thought process and a trend to where you get a, a chief risk officer across many companies and maybe reporting to that chief risk officer is a chief security officer or chief information security officer as one aspect of risk management. I, I have seen that. In fact, a role I held in 2011 for a few years was chief risk officer at a hosting provider a, a different one than we worked at together. Yes. And the reason we came with chief risk officer title, because originally they wanted me to be the, C, the CSO, the chief security officer, is when I talked about, so as you're managing security and managing risk, what are we transferring over to insurance? And what do those premiums look like? And what are the residuals going to be? And what do we need for secondary? And how much of that are we transferring to our customers? And they, they got it, and they said, yeah, this is really more risk than it is only security. So the chief risk officer title worked. I've seen a few other companies that are getting there. I, I think having the function is more important than having the title, but I think having the title makes that function more visible. Yeah, so if you're a, a board member or a, a CEO out there listening to this, uh, and you're going through, uh, right now, uh, as uh, Jeff said before the break, we were I was having this hypothetical conversation where you're, that CSO is a peer of the CFO or chief marketing officer or the other folks inside the organization reporting to the CEO. And he said, that's not super likely in a lot of cases. I was, we've seen it where the CIO uh, reports to the CEO or maybe the COO even. So you get this stacked layer of C-levels. But if you have the, the chief security officer responsible for IT security effectively reporting to the CIO, the CIOs generally give, gets their bonus off of releasing new applications that make the business better, um, application uptime, and, and not only uh, just releasing whole new applications, but releasing additional functionality and features into existing applications. And then you have a, a chief security officer who reports to them and gets their bonus off of making sure you don't have any flaws or defects in any of these things. So you are creating uh, a reporting structure that is diametrically opposed to each other. Um, and you've set the, the chief information officer up. If they make their chief security officer successful and that person gets a bonus, they're probably sacrificing their own bonus. Yeah, you, it's, you know, whatever, you, whatever incentive you have, you have to make sure you know that those are the results you're going to get. And I'm going to use another analogy. Would you fire the fire chief of a city based on the number of fires in the city? I hope not. It, it, probably not, but 
CISOs in the situation you just described, they're going to be fine until there's a problem, at which point they're not fine and very likely looking for new work. Yeah. All right. So if you draw that analogy to a fire chief, a, a fire chief's job is, is, in fact, one of the executives usually in a fire department, in a large city in particular, is fire prevention. And fire prevention only works when education and tools are put in the hands of building owners and landlords and homeowners so they can do the right things to prevent fires. Smokey the Bear takes care of it in the forest. But, but in a city, yes. only they can prevent fires. And fire prevention focuses on that. And in fact, fire chiefs don't necessarily get a bonus because there's fewer fires. But I think they should in the same way that a, a CISO should be incent, incentivized to say, here's how many people are doing the right things to keep our environment safe and secure, as opposed to there weren't any known breaches yet, so please give me a bonus. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one because, I mean, in, in that bonus structure, there, as you just mentioned, no known breaches, I get a bonus. They're almost incentivized to cover things up, which is, as a CEO, I don't want to cover up. I want as soon as something happens, I want to know about it and have the opportunity to uh, act on it to keep uh, our customer information safe and secure. So what a CISO needs to do is stop focusing on security tools. They are some good tools. There's no question. Yeah. But they need to focus on what is it that we have out there. Go find what it is. The best security you could, tool you can have is something you run that's going across every single IP address that you know the company's paying for, even if it's on a credit card and, and not even connected to your network. Because that happens often, too. If, if any department wants to use a SaaS application, presto, all they need is a browser. Yeah. So you need to be able to identify and define all your assets. There are very few tools out there that can do that, and I'm not here to advertise any of them, but there are some that can, that can do a really good job of discovery. Um, what's strange is when I talk to the people running the companies for those tools, they say I sell to the CEO, not the CISO. And then I asked, so what happens to the CISO once that, once you sell the product and it's in there and running? And they said, well, they usually leave. Yeah. Because it says, here's all the things you missed. Don't be that CISO. Yeah. Find it first and start working on classifying what type of information's there and be proactive to un at least understanding the risks you have across the board. Because um, that CEO should be able to come to you uh, from an information security perspective. And if you may not directly have the answer yourself, but inside of your team, uh, you should be aware of all of the risks and have someone should have an informed opinion about the impact of that risk on the organization. Um, if you never get stumped by the CEO or a board member or an auditor, then you are uh, running a very successful organization. I would agree with that because you should be able to say, here's our tier one stuff. Boy, that's tight. And when you get down to tier four, you could say, yeah, we have the fundamental things in place. So um, so if as you get into that, um, and circling back to the start of our program, so you've come in, you've classified everything, um, you've helped the organization achieve compliance, um, and say so you have some valuable assets. And this is uh, where uh, you're getting into that maybe – second, third, fourth year of being with an organization, and they're now going, hey, uh, can you reduce your budget? Um, so you've achieved compliance. We had to do a bunch of big projects. 
why do you need project money again here in year two or year three? Can't you just operate the things that, that we have um, and keep it lean and maybe save us some money here from a, a risk and security cost center perspective? Well, you know, there's always ways to potentially do that, but the best answer to that is, first of all, we're, so are we reducing budget everywhere and we're keeping everything stable? We're not going to be adding new technology. We're not going to do any mergers or acquisitions. We're not going to change anything about our physical location. Somewhere along the way, someone's going to say, well, yeah, we're probably going to do some of those things. Okay, each one of those is new. You wipe the slate clean whenever you do that. And, and then you start again. Now, there may be a baseline that you can use, but you're going to have to go through that again. Add on top of that, that the threats, I talked about threats, vulnerabilities, and probability, the threats are always advancing. Yeah. The, 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 the bad thing about the bad guys, and this is an old saying, they only have to get it right once. The, the defenders have to get it right every single time, and, and, and you're not going to. It, it, it's going to happen. They're go, you know, the bad guy's going to get it once. So in order to stay at least on top of what those advancing threats are, you, you know, I'm not going to say you can or can't reduce your budget, but it, it shouldn't be simply, hey, we've achieved it, now we don't need it anymore. Let's lay off half the fire department because we haven't had a fire in two months. Yeah, and this is, is one, as even if you aren't changing anything as a company, the world is changing around you uh, continually. Uh, and from an information technology perspective, you should be making changes because um, structurally uh, across every industry right now, technology is making advances uh, that can make your business more efficient. Um, it's going to create some new risks each time you do these things. But the efficiency inside of technology should outweigh even the, the risk of it and the cost of implementation. Uh, should Everyone should be able to be using technology to make their business better uh, these days on a continual basis. Yeah, and get rid of the stuff you haven't used. It, uh, yeah, some, your, your reputation rides on the fact that you approved it. If you're not using it, get rid of it. Yeah, uh, that's a, an interesting one. From a, a risk perspective, you have these uh, platforms or applications that hang around because someone championed it, um, and if it's not getting used or if it's not getting the budget that it needs for ongoing patching, update, maintenance, and monitoring, and uh, all of those into the future years, uh, then the longer it hangs around, the more risk you create. Yeah, pride. That'll be uh, the uh, the death of all of us, most uh, likely. I think someone said that once. Yes. Probably more famous than me. So if I've quoted this on the air and I'm not allowed to use that quote, if it's copyrighted out there, I'm sorry. Well, the good news is attribution probably goes back centuries. Okay, so. that's good. So somebody that really old said it, older than Mickey Mouse. Yeah, public domain, I guess. Public domain now. That's good. So, Jeff, if, if someone's wanted to learn more about managing risk, where would you send them to go? And kind of let's go through it from a novice level, an intermediate level, and then where do you go to continue your education about risk and risk management? Okay, from a novice level, I would offer you are going to be more tool-based because you need to learn about what are the mechanisms I'm going to be able to use to manage risk. And you probably need to learn those before you really get into managing risk. Because if you, if you don't know the mechanisms, once you know, once you think you know what the risks are, and you, you probably don't because you don't know what level of controls you can apply. So learn that first, whether it's data leak protection or identity and authentication, you know, whatever, or any combination of those tools as a novice. Learn more of those and learn programming. 
You're not going to be able to talk to the people that run the applications if you can't speak their language. You don't have to be an expert, but you need to be able to speak their language or, or they're going to ignore you. They're going to blow you off as some guy that doesn't know what he's doing or some girl that doesn't know what he's doing. As, at an intermediate level, I think what you need to do is take a look at um, that risk triangle that I mentioned and say, what is our risk appetite? And you're going to be getting that from someone, and I'll get to that in a minute. And then how do I manage these different tools, which are my control levers for risk, to make sure I'm keeping that triangle within, within the risk appetite? Focusing on using the tools, a little less on learning them, and directing people to say, here's, here's the parameters you need to keep. Keep it in there for whoever's operating the, the controls. At a senior or at an executive level, my first recommendation is go to the CFO. And I'll often say, take the CFO to lunch. This is before you go to any training or classes. And ask the CFO, what are the five most important things for the company this year? Don't say one thing about what you're going to do in security or risk. Never bring it up. The, the, the CFO knows that we, that's what you do. You don't have to emphasize it. When you get those five things, go back and within a couple of days, send a message or a letter, however the communications work in your organization, and tell the CFO, here's what we're going to do to support those five efforts. And what you've done now is, is say, here's the risk appetite. Here's what's important to the company. All the other controls still make sense. But now I've just learned what tier one is. These are the most important things to me. I need to make sure the right controls are around that. When you do that, you've accomplished effective and, and educated risk management. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for uh, sitting down and uh, joining us on CyberTalk Radio, Jeff. If uh, you're listening and just turn the radio on here, uh, you can catch the rebroadcast or replay of this on our website at www.cybertalkradio uh, on Tuesday after we air. Um, and if you're listening online through one of the podcasting services now, thank you uh, for joining us on CyberTalk Radio. Talk Radio.